Our world is enamored with the idea of love. Thousands of books and songs have been written about love and love stories. Love may be a popular subject, but how important is love, and what does the Bible have to say about it? Join Kyle Butt in today's podcast lesson as he takes a look at what the Bible has to say about the importance of love. If you were to Google the word love, you would in 0.84 seconds get 13.19 billion entries as to what pops up with Googling the word love. It is one of, if not the, most Googled and searched for words in the world. There is more about love than you could read in a hundred lifetimes. Many of us know some of those things that we have read just if you were looking at book titles. Maybe when you were a small child, your parents read to you, love you forever. Or, I love you to the moon and back. Maybe some of those classic books that you have heard, From Russia with Love or Love in the Time of Cholera. If you then look at maybe the songs that mention love, Right now, they estimate that there are about 100 million songs that love is the main theme. 64.5% of all songs, the main theme is love. If you were to look at various poems, the bulk of poems mention love. As you then start listening to the lyrics of these songs and these poems, in 1965, Jackie DeShannon sang the song, What the World Needs Now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. Bob Marley sang the song, One Love. And as you look at Elvis, he sang, Love Me Tender. The Beatles sang, All You Need is Love. Huey Lewis and the News, The Power of Love. Taylor Swift, Love Story. You could just keep going down the list. Whatever genre of music you listen to, there are any number of songs about love that most of you could rattle off in a few seconds. And so with all of this attention to the idea of love, then we just need to ask ourselves, how important is love? It's talked about so often. People sing about it all the time. They write about it. Just how important is it? Or in the words of Tina Turner's song, what's love got to do with it? Well, when you go to the Bible, you see something that is very interesting. The Bible explains to us that love is of extreme importance. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and following, the Bible says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then as you go to John chapter 13 and you look in verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You're starting to see that the Bible considers love to be something very, very important. In fact, it's the mark 
of a Christian. If someone looks at your behavior and asks, is this person a follower of Christ, what identifying mark is going to let them know that you follow Jesus Christ? The love that you have. Well, the Bible gets even more serious about how important love is. When you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you look in verses 1 through 3, and the text says where Paul is writing, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am become as sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So basically, Paul is saying you could be performing every action correctly, but if there is no love in your heart, you're missing the most important thing. And several years ago, I was looking at an ad for a car, and I was surprised at the price of the car. It looked like that it was going to be a very good deal. As the description of the car, I think it was a Nissan Altima, and they were asking only $1,000 for it. And it was a late model, and I was very surprised at this because it looked like it would have been worth many more thousands of dollars. And it said it had power steering and power windows and power locks, and the body outside of it was in pristine condition. And I was thinking, okay, what's the punchline? And finally got to the part of the ad where it said, missing an engine. I mean, I mean, okay, I'm going to sell you a car, and it's got all of these bells and whistles, and it's got all kinds of great things. It's just missing the main component. You can get down the road without power windows. You can get down the road without power locks. You can get down the road without a radio. But you know what you can't get down the road without? An engine. You've got to have it. It's the thing that moves your car along. What is the Bible saying is the engine of Christianity? Love. Let's look at one more verse that validates and verifies this fact. You look at Matthew chapter 22, you start in verse 36, and here's what the text says. A man had come to Jesus and wanted to get him to answer a question, and the man was trying to really trick Jesus to catch him in something. Because this man thought, hey, out of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, there's no way that this teacher will be able to answer this question. And so he said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. And Jesus responded very quickly when he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great command. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So what we're seeing is the simple fact that everyone talks about love. It's one of the, if not the, most popular subjects in the entire world. And when we come to God's view on love, well, God says that love is the most important thing in the Christian, well-ordered life. You simply cannot be a happy, productive person if you do not have the engine of love. And so the next question that would arise is, okay, we see lots of people talking about it, and we see that God says it's the most important thing basically in the entire world. In fact, God describes himself as love. In 1 John, we read God is love. So it's so very important. 
Well, what is it? Now, that's a really good question. If I were to ask you to give me a definition of love or ask you to tell me what love is, or as foreigner, the group saying, I want to know what love is. Well, what is it? Well, several years ago, I was at Freed Hardeman University, and we were doing something like a Best Buddies program where we were helping some of the local kids be involved with the community. And they had been in some homes that sometimes were abusive and other things, and we were just trying to give them a good role model and help them have fun doing some wholesome things. And I remember I was taking a couple young men, they were in sixth grade, and I was taking them to, to go to something like a kickball game. And I was wanting to try to start a conversation with them about love because here's what I thought. If God is love and I can get them to think what love is and I can segue from that discussion of love to God and the importance of a soul and some things like that, just wanted to try to get in a spiritual discussion with them. And so I asked them, I said, if I were to ask you what is love, what would you say? And the first Sixth grade boy in the back seat said, love is kissing all over a girl. I was, I was surprised at that. And the next one piped up and he had a description of love that was even more physically involved. And that was their concept of love. Now, if I'm trying to segue into a discussion on God and that is their complete and entire view of love, well, you can see there's going to be a problem. We're going to run into some miscommunication. And so we need to define what love is. You know, the Greeks had at least eight different words to describe love. One of them was mania, and it would describe something like a fan, uh, an obsession, a maniacal type obsession with a, a certain person or an object or an individual. You had eros, which was described as sexual love, phileo, which was brotherly love. So what is it when the Bible is saying that love is the most important component of the Christian life? What love is being discussed? You have a word that the Greeks and Romans both used, and that word is agape. That's what you see in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So when we look at that word agape, is there some kind of definition, something that we could say, this is what love is? We can. John chapter 3, 16 gives us a working definition of that. And here's what that working definition is. That love is doing what's spiritually best for others, regardless of what it costs you, whether they deserve it or not. Now, I'm going to repeat that, and let's look at it in John chapter 3, verse 16. Love is doing what's spiritually best for others, regardless of what it costs you, whether they deserve it or not. For God so loved. Okay, there we have it, the word. God loves us. So what does love then do? That He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Notice the components. God loved, and it cost Him His Son. But He cared so much for our spiritual condition that He sent His Son so we could be with Him for eternity. And notice the last part of that definition. Whether we deserved it or not, we didn't deserve it. In fact, in another place in the Scripture, we read that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there you have it, a definition 
of love. Doing what's spiritually best for others, regardless of what it costs you, whether they deserve it or not. You know, when we look out at the world's definitions of love, we find that if you define something as important as love in an incorrect way, you're going to run into all kinds of problems. What happens when someone thinks love is one thing and they don't recognize that it's doing what's spiritually best for another person, regardless of what it costs them, whether that person deserves it or not? You know, on July the 16th in 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. was flying a plane right outside of Martha's Vineyard. He had been trained on this particular kind of plane. He had his wife and sister-in-law in the plane with him, and it was kind of a hazy day. It was one of those days that wasn't the beautiful clear day that you would like to fly on, but it was still flyable. A few people in the area had canceled their flights because they didn't feel like they would have the visibility, but JFK Jr. was only trained and certified for flying visibly. He wasn't trained on the equipment or using the various things that you would fly with if you couldn't see. And so the instruments and the certification for that he didn't have, but he felt like he could see fine. And so he flew with his wife and his sister-in-law, and tragically, Tragically, they were affected, and he was affected, by something that's called spatial disorientation. And the people who study spatial disorientation say that it's responsible for between 5% and 10% of all plane crashes. And they say spatial disorientation is the inability to tell which way is up. Now, you can see what would happen in that case. JFK Jr., his plane had flipped upside down and he couldn't tell which way was up, and so he pulled that stick up the direction he thought was up. But when he did, the plane went straight into the ground. You see, not having the right definition of something can get us into serious trouble. It can make us go the opposite way of the way we were planning to go. So as we look at the world's definitions of love, what do we find? Well, one of the most prevalent definitions that the world has of love is the idea that love is acceptance. That if you love someone, you not only accept them as a person, but you accept all of their behavior, that you don't try to change that person. A loving person, according to this definition, would never try to change someone else. And if you love someone, you accept them and their behavior and everything that comes with them, and you don't ask them to change, you just accept them. And that's one very prevalent definition of love in our society. I remember several years ago I was watching a show and it was a talk show and the host was talking to a girl, looked like she was in her 20s, and asking her what her situation was at her family. And the girl said, well, my mom just doesn't love me. And the talk show host said, well, what do you mean your mom doesn't love you? The girl said, well, my mom can't love me. What she does to me and the way she responds to me can't be a loving response. And, of course, the talk show host said, well, tell us about that. And the girl said, well, I recently came out of the closet, and I am a lesbian, and I have a lesbian lover, and I have asked my mom to let us come home to the house and visit. And my mom has a moral problem with homosexuality, and she says that as long as I am practicing this homosexual lifestyle, then I'm not welcome at her house. She said, the mom says, if I'll stop this, then I'm welcome, but I'm not welcome if I continue the practice. 
And the girl said, and so there is evidence that my mom does not love me. Is it true that love is accepting all people and all behaviors? No, that's never been true. Now the Bible explains to us that love is accepting all people, not showing partiality, not making a difference between people based on any type of economic status or based on any type of ethnicity, but never has the Bible said that love is accepting all behavior. In fact, if you're going to do what's spiritually best for another person, and it doesn't matter what it costs you, regardless of what it costs you, whether they deserve it or not, lots of times you are going to attempt to correct their behavior that would get in the way of their relationship with God. It's interesting to me in Mark chapter 10, a young man comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what good thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus explains to him, here's what you need to do, follow the commandments. And he mentions several of those commandments. And the rich young man says, I've done all those since I was a child. And the Bible then says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, according to the world's definition of acceptance, what would Jesus say? Oh, bring it in. Great work. Glad you've kept those commandments. That's not what Jesus said. In fact, the Bible says Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, One thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and take up your cross and follow me. Do you think Jesus knew that the rich young man would not obey his command? Oh, he knew that. But Jesus loved him enough to say, this is what you need to do to get spiritually right with God. Love has never been accepting any behavior. Love has always been being willing to do what's spiritually right for another person, regardless of what it costs you, whether they deserve it or not. You know, as you look at our society, another definition of love that our society has used so often and so wrongly is the idea that love is equal to the physical sexual relationship. In fact, lots of times you'll see stores that on their names will be using the word love, like the love shack or the Love Palace, or you will see something like where I live, there is a store called Love Bound. And they'll say this is an adult store, and they'll have some X's underneath that. And what they're doing is equating love with the physical interaction of sexual intercourse. And the Bible never says that love is equal to sex. In fact, lots of times, sex is used in a way that destroys a person's spiritual well-being. Do you know right now in the United States of America, there are over 33 different sexually transmitted diseases. Several years ago, the number one disease in the nation, where 65 million people at any given time have it, is HPV, a sexually transmitted disease. And if you were to look at other stats, you would see that in the United States of America, one out of five people who are over the age of 12 have herpes. And so if you went into a mall and you just counted one, two, three, four, five, on average, one out of five of them would have herpes, which is a virus, a sexually transmitted disease in most cases that a person will never lose, will have for the rest of his or her life, that will continue to show itself through symptoms. And the sexual promiscuity of our society is wreaking havoc on the emotional 
and physical well-being of our people all over the world. And, and lots of times that's presented like that's love. And a young man will be dating a young woman and he will be wanting to go further. And he will say, you know, people who love each other would... Or a young man will be talking to a young girl and he would say, if you love me, would you send me a picture? Would you snap me a picture of you? Love would never ask for a picture. Love would never try to get someone to involve themselves in something that would not be spiritually good for them. You see, the Bible has talked about where and when that sexual relationship can be used and is special. From the beginning of time, God has said that sex is to be reserved for a marriage, and that marriage God defines as one man and one woman for life. And so as you look at that idea of sex being equal to love, well, what you see is sex is being abused and it's being used to destroy people's emotional and many times physical well-being, and it can't be equated with love because love is doing what's spiritually best for another person, regardless of what it costs you, whether they deserve it or not. The best-selling author Nicholas Sparks wrote a book called The Wedding, and in that book he said, But I'm convinced that love is not three words that you mumble at night. It's sustained by action and is the way we treat people with devotion every day of our lives. Love can't be equated to a passing physical feeling or action because love's doing what's spiritually best for another person, regardless of what it costs you, whether or not they deserve it. So we've got a good working definition of love. We've seen how important it is. We see how many people talk about it. We see that sometimes it's misdefined, and when it's not defined correctly, it can get us into very serious trouble. But lots of times when you define a word, then you kind of need to know what it looks like in action. And what I mean by that is if you were just asking for the word to be used in a sentence. Could you show me where this love is taking place? Can you show me what the word looks like in a person's life? Well, you can. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Bible is talking to you about love, the engine of the happy, joyful Christian life, and it starts to describe some things for you about love. In verse 4, it says, Love suffers long and is kind. Well, that word suffers long. In some translations, it says love endures. Other translations, it says love never gives up. Love is patient, the text says. What does it look like when a person applies the real definition of love and we see love being patient? You know, several months ago, I was at a congregation and I was preaching and someone came up to me and there was a man who was wheeling his wife down the aisle and she was in a wheelchair and that person said to me, do you see that man right there? And I said, yes. He said, let me tell you about that man. He said, that man and that woman have been married for several decades now. I think it was something like 40 or 50 years. And he said, here's their situation. On the night of their wedding, they had gotten in the car and they were going on their honeymoon and they came to something like a four-way stop and as they were going through, someone came through that stop sign and slammed into their car. 
and the accident was tragic and it was very bad and it caused the wife to be paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of her life on the night of their honeymoon. And this person told me that that man had been taking care of every physical need of his wife for the last 40 or 50 years. He had been making sure that he was getting her to worship because she enjoyed going and he would dress her nicely and make sure she was dressed in a way she wanted to be dressed for worship. And for 40 or 50 years, he had taken care of his wife and she was paralyzed from the neck down the night of their wedding. Do you think those two had different ideas of what marriage would be like, different than what had played out in the course of their life? Do you think when they stood before that audience of people and stood where that preacher was and before God and said, I promise to love, honor, and cherish you in sickness and in health, in for richer, for poorer, for better or for worse, do you think either one of them had in mind the idea that, that one of the two would be paralyzed for the rest of their life a few hours after swapping their vows? No, not at all. So why does a man, after he says to this woman, I will be with you in sickness and in health for as long as we both shall live, and she's paralyzed the night of their wedding, why does he stay with her? Why does he take care of her every physical need for 40 or 50 years? Because he made a decision. He made a decision to do what was spiritually best for another person regardless of what it cost him, whether they deserved it or not. Did that cost him a lot of things? Absolutely, positively. But is that what love looks like? It surely is. In fact, I'm thinking of a person right now, a woman, she goes to the doctor and she's pregnant, but she knows she's having some, some complications, it feels like. And so she goes to the doctor and the doctor says, yeah, you need to abort this fetus. This child, if you want to call it that, he says, is going to be born, but it's going to have disabilities, both physical and mental, and you will be taking care of this child for the rest of your life. And the mother totally ignores the profane and wrong, sinful attitude of that doctor because she recognizes that all children, all people are created in the image and likeness of God regardless of what they might benefit society. And she gives birth to that son. And sure enough, that son has physical and mental disabilities and he lives for 30 years and never mentally gets past the age of a two-year-old. And for her whole entire life, for 30 years, she has to make sure that every one of his needs is taken care of. And in the course of that, he never once even has the capacity to say, thank you. Now, why would a mother who is getting nothing from that situation insofar as no monetary compensation, not even having the son say thank you to her, why would she do that? Because love suffers long. You think about Jesus being the ultimate example of love in action. I picture him as he's being led to be crucified and he's going through that trial and those soldiers are doing all kinds of terrible things to him. 
and they put that crown of thorns on his head and they have that reed that they're acting like is some type of rod for a king and they hit him in the head with that reed pounding those thorns into his head even further and they spit on him and they smack him with the open palms of their hand and they say, tell us who smacked you and they mockingly bow the knee to Jesus. Could Jesus have stopped that at any time? Oh, absolutely, positively. Not only could he have called a single angel that would have demolished every Roman soldier within a hundred miles, but I think there could have been other ways he could have done that. When someone smacked him and they asked, tell us who did that. If he started rattling off their name and information, oh, that was Julius. He lives down on the Apian Way. He's married to Helen. They have three children. He just recently bought a, bought a new pair of oxen. And I think if he did that three or four times, they would start to have seen something was special. But he didn't. Why not? Well, because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, and that son had to die on the cross. What kept Jesus on the cross? Was it the nails? The soldiers? Those nails didn't keep Jesus on the cross, and those soldiers had no power over Jesus. You know what kept Jesus on the cross? My sin and your sin kept Jesus on the cross. And because He loved us, regardless of what it cost Him, for what was spiritually best for us, even when we didn't deserve it, He stayed on that cross because love suffers long. You know, as you look down further in the description of love, the Bible says that love does not seek its own. It's not selfish. It's not looking out for what it can get out of everyone. I have seen this play out so many times, and it's always remarkable when it does. I was worshiping at a congregation several years ago, and there was an elder at that congregation, and he had a heart attack. A bad heart attack. Looked like he might not make it through. And the emergency medical people came to his door and they were putting him in the ambulance. And they mentioned where they were going to take him to a hospital. And he said, no, you can't take me there. And they were surprised. And they said, why? That's the closest one that we've got. We need to get you there as quickly as we can. That's where we need to take you. And he said, no, I insist you cannot take me there. You have to take me to this other hospital. And they were perplexed by that, but at his wishes, they did take him to the other hospital. And as I was talking to him, I basically said, why? Why did you go to that other hospital? And he said, well, my wife cannot walk up steps very well. And she was going to have problems at this hospital, I knew, because there was no real way to get into the rooms. And I knew this other hospital had a place for her to use a ramp, and she could get up to me and see me better. Can you imagine that? You're in the middle of a life-threatening heart attack. And the first thing you're thinking about is whether or not your wife is going to be able to come see you in the hospital room if you make it. You see, love does not seek its own. There's a very interesting passage in the book of Philippians. It's talking about having the mind of Christ and let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. And this mind of Christ is when you put others in front of you. And it gets to a passage about a man by the name of Epaphroditus. And Paul is telling the Philippians, I'm sending to you Epaphroditus. And he explains Epaphroditus' situation. And here's what he says, Since he was longing for you all, in verses 26 and 27, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost to death. Now look at that situation. 
Epaphroditus had heard that the Philippians had heard he was sick. And he was distressed not because he was literally on his deathbed. He was distressed because the Philippians might be worried about him. Now, I don't know about you, but at my house when I get sick, I feel like the world needs to stop and everybody needs to wait on me. And if I need a popsicle, somebody needs to get it for me. And if I need to be driven to the doctor, somebody needs to do that. Epaphroditus wasn't even thinking about himself and he was on his deathbed. He was thinking about how worried the Philippians were. Love does not seek its own. As you watch Jesus through that crucifixion scene, there's one part where He is going to the cross and there are women who are behind Him and they're weeping and they're crying. And He stops and He turns to the women and basically says, don't cry for me. If they will do this to me, then when I leave, they're going to do even worse things to you and to my followers. Jesus is thinking about others while He's on His way to the cross. And as he's hanging on that cross, there are two thieves on either side of him. And that one thief is mocking Jesus, and the other thief recognizes that Jesus is who he says he is, and he asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. What's Jesus thinking about while he's on the cross? The thief. And then you see that scene where his mother is standing at the foot of the cross. And he says to Mary, his mother, Woman, behold your son. And one of the last breaths that he has before he dies on that cross is then he looks at John, the disciple that he loves, and he says, Son, behold your mother. And the text says, From that day John took Mary to his own house and took care of her. Jesus was thinking about how to make sure Mary, his mother, was taken care of while he was dying on the cross. Love does not seek its own. And then you look at that idea as you continue in the text there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Bible says that love bears no record of wrong. Several years ago during World War II, there was a lady by the name of Corrie Ten Boom. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. In that book, she explained that during the war, she and her family were trying to help Jews get away from the Gestapo and there was a room in their home that they were hiding them. The Gestapo found out what was happening and so they captured Corey Ten Boom and her sister and they threw them in Ravensbrück concentration camp for women. And she said it was a terrible time. Lots of times they were tortured. They were made to work with hardly any food. Sometimes they would have to stand out at attention in the freezing cold for hours. And if they fell out of attention, then many times the women who did would be killed. And sometimes they would have hardly any clothes, something maybe akin to a hospital gown and hardly any shoes at all. And their feet would be freezing. And there were cruel guards who would mock them and make fun of them. And after the war, after the war, she was traveling around in 1947 and she was talking about her experiences in the war and how, how God can forgive sins and can take the sins of any person and throw them into, it's like he's throwing them into the ocean and they're falling into the deepest part of the ocean never to come out again. And she said her message was very well received by the people to whom she was talking. And as she was meeting people and walking toward the back, she said it was almost like everything in her world stopped. And she looked up and coming toward her was one of the guards from Ravensbrook. And she said that guard, as he came forward, 
her mind flashed back, almost like in a movie scene, to where you go back in time. And her mind flashed back to seeing him specifically. She knew him because he was one of the cruelest guards that was at the camp. And that guard came up to her and introduced himself and said that he was a guard at Ravensbrook and she remembered him very well. And he said how excited about her message he was, about how God can forgive sins. And he put his hand out and he said, I'm sorry for what I did there. Will you forgive me? Well, she said she could hardly even pull her hand up. It was like it was frozen. But then finally she did and she clasped his hand and she said, yes, I forgive you with all my heart. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love forgives. You know, as you look at Jesus, of course, He's the perfect example of that. Being willing to forgive us of our sins and those sins kept Jesus on the cross. You look at how Peter denied Him three times. But that didn't stop Jesus from making sure Peter was back in the fold and he was given the opportunity to preach the first recorded gospel sermon there in Acts chapter 2. You look at how Jesus meets Paul on the road to Damascus. Saul, he was called at the time, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was wreaking havoc on the church. He was literally voting to kill the Christians. The church was the bride of Christ. Can you imagine someone doing terrible, horrible things to your bride, to your wife. That's what Paul was doing to the bride of Christ, the church. And yet, and yet Jesus approached Paul and showed him the truth. And Paul became a Christian as he went there into the city and found Ananias and was baptized into Christ and had his sins washed away. And Jesus forgave Paul. And Paul later became one of the most outspoken people who were proponents of Christianity and the life and teaching of Christ. And he said that this is a true statement, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Love bears no record of wrong. It doesn't keep track of that once a person changes their behavior. You're starting to see what love is. In 1919, a young child was born and her name was Madeline. And as Madeline grew, somehow she developed a hatred for God, a hatred for other people, a hatred for anything religious. And she had a very tumultuous life. She ultimately was called by the name of Madeline Murray O'Hare. She had had two children by two different men neither of whom she was married to. And one of those children was in a school system in Baltimore in 1960, and there was a prayer and a Bible reading, and she felt like that a person shouldn't have to listen to anything about God in school. And so she sued the Baltimore system, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and she won the case. So in 1963, basically prayer and Bible reading was taken out of the public school systems in the United States of America that same year. She founded the American Atheist Group. And if you have ever seen any type of interview with her or any type of interaction with her, what you will see is a woman who was vulgar, profane, foul-mouthed, and just seemed like she was angry at the world. Well, in 1995, she was kidnapped with her son and granddaughter. 
and they were used to extort several hundred thousand dollars from the American Atheist group, and ultimately she was brutally murdered. And as all of the things played out and the evidence came forward, they found the remains of her body and her son and her granddaughter. And it was committed by a man that was in the American Atheist group that they knew. And they also found her writings. And she had multiple hundreds of pages of writings. And six times throughout the course of her writing, she had made the statement, somebody, somewhere, Love me. Isn't that so sad? The irony was that the God she was fighting against was the God who had tried to do what was spiritually best for her, regardless of what it cost him. Whether or not she deserved it and she didn't, just like you and I don't. But she was looking for someone to love her. And He was there all the time. Do you know every single one of us is designed to be attracted to real love? And we are spending our lives looking for that. And we can see and have seen love face to face. And Jesus is His name.